So I want to start this episode with a disclaimer. I'm going to be sharing some stories, not just in this episode, but in future episodes as well, about the pain and the shame that I experienced related to being overweight. And some of those stories will feature other people in my life. While I did feel hurt from these experiences, I think it's important to point out that my pain was based upon my interpretation of those events and not necessarily because these people intended to hurt me. Often they actually intended to help me and we were all just victims of diet culture. Or when they did intend to hurt me, I've seen now that they were actually hurting as well. And although it doesn't excuse the behavior, I have forgiven it and even allowed myself to feel empathy for the hurt people who hurt people. I was around 11 years old when I could no longer fit the clothes in the kids' department. Although it's a lot more common today to move up to junior sizes at that age and to even be excited about it, this was 20 to 25 years ago. And in my situation, I actually have a twin sister who I naturally was always compared to. We're fraternal twins, so not expected to look exactly alike, but we couldn't have been more different. My childhood was very much about me being the short and fat one while she was the tall and skinny one. Yes, people literally said this out loud regularly. One day, my mom had to take me clothes shopping, and when I couldn't fit any of the clothes in the kids' department, my mom seemed frustrated, again, that was my perspective, about having to look in the juniors' department. Not only did we have to look in juniors, but I was at the top of the size range there. My mom held up some pants to my waist, and we grabbed some 11s and some 13s. The fitting room confirmed that I was a size 13. I remember my mom looked down at me and said, I'm a size 12 in women's, and you're a size 13 in juniors. You're only 11 years old, and you wear the same size as me. I looked at my mom, and I didn't know what to say. I tried to hold back tears. I felt so much anger and shame. I didn't understand how that could be true. Today, now that I do wear women's size clothes, I don't even think that was realistically true. I would probably still need a size 13 in juniors today, even though the equivalent is more like a size 8 in women's, not a size 12. But the point was that I believed it, and I believed it meant that there was something seriously wrong with me. Now, I really don't think my mom meant to hurt me or to shame me. I think she was just trying to give me some kind of a wake-up call. I watched her dieting and struggling with weight most of her life, and so of course now I understand, because I've done it to myself time and time again too, that she thought that a wake-up call would be an effective tactic. How many times have I stepped on the scale and literally said out loud to myself, look at this number, you need to get it together? Haven't you? I remember being younger than that even, maybe around eight years old, when my mom tried to put me on some version of a diet. Growing up in the 80s, low-fat craze, my mom bought all sorts of fat-free snacks for me to have, but it wasn't for the whole family to have, it was just for me. We still had lots of other junk food in the house, I guess for my twin sister and older brother and sister, who were able to tolerate those foods without getting fat and shouldn't have to be quote-unquote punished because of me. That was never actually said out loud, but it was felt. I never understood how if I ate the same exact things as my twin sister, I was fat and she wasn't. My mom tried to explain metabolism to me. All I knew is it was unfair and I was messed up. When my sister and I were eight, We had a babysitter who was 14. Her name was Joy, and we basically worshipped her. She wore bum equipment sweatshirts and had perfectly gelled curly hair, and she told us the funniest stories about pranks in her school. One day, she came over to babysit, and my mom had written out a snack list on the refrigerator whiteboard, and she was explaining it to Joy. On the left side were snacks my twin sister could eat. Ice cream, chips, 
cookies, all the good stuff. But on the right side were things that I could eat. Fat-free pudding, pretzels, wheat thins, whatever. I felt shame listening to my mom explain this to Joy. About five minutes after my parents left the house, Joy asked if we wanted a snack, and being the rule follower that I always was, I resentfully looked at my list of options. Joy said, that list is a bunch of crap. You can eat whatever you want when I'm here. I felt elated and free and somehow just seen and affirmed. Now, most kids are obsessed with fairness, but even more so twins, and even more so being someone of my personality type. And I thought that list was so unfair. If a food was healthy, shouldn't it be what we all ate? And if a food was unhealthy, shouldn't we all avoid it? Joy saying that list was stupid made me feel like I wasn't crazy or wrong for thinking it. As a kid, I thought my propensity toward being overweight, or my quote-unquote slow metabolism, as it was explained to me, was a curse that was given to me that I had no control over, and the best that I could do was work twice as hard as everyone else and be doomed to a life of unfairness if I wanted to not be fat. And this mindset pretty much carried into my entire adult life until a few years ago. In last week's episode, I mentioned that I have struggled with my weight my entire life, but for the majority of my life, it was actually more of a struggle with feeling overweight rather than actually being overweight. I was definitely overweight as a child and experienced some trauma surrounding that, and the mindset never really left me, even when I did hit a healthy weight. In junior high, the summer between my 6th and 7th grade, I started counting calories and basically starving myself to try to lose weight. I also used to secretly exercise in my room after school. In school, I had learned in my textbooks about anorexia and bulimia, and I interpreted these as new effective tactics to try out for weight loss. It wasn't taught to me that way, of course, but apparently those things worked. Ever the scaredy cat that I was, I was too afraid to stick my finger down my throat to make myself throw up, so anorexia it was. I wouldn't say that I ever was anorexic simply because I never looked anorexic, but that doesn't mean the starvation tactic wasn't there. I reached a healthy weight before I went back into the fall of seventh grade through some combination of actually being fully through puberty and my own weight loss efforts, and finally boys started to show an interest in me. That didn't solve any problems for me, though. By eighth grade, I was a full-grown woman physically, the same height I am today, and in a healthy BMI from what I now know and understand. But I still looked around and compared myself to magazine models and five-foot-tall cheerleaders, and I felt huge. I was drawn to being in relationships with guys who flirted with me over AOL Instant Messenger and told me they loved my curves, but out in public in front of their other friends, they made fun of my body and called me thunder thighs. I didn't stand up for myself because I thought it was true, and probably on some level because I was accustomed to feeling shamed by people who claimed to love me. At this point, I didn't differentiate between what was intended to help or intended to hurt. Although not an eating disorder, it certainly was disordered eating for most of my life, extreme restriction of calories for as long as I could go, and then binging just without the purging. In high school, a normal restriction day was a banana for breakfast, a Nutri-Grain bar for lunch, and then skipping dinner and drinking iced coffee instead because I had a job in retail at night and there was no queue for dinner where I would actually have to eat in front of other people to avoid being asked questions. In college, I moved on to incorporating laxatives and water pills. Even once I got married to my husband and I was in an actually healthy relationship, I would still hide my restrictive food practices and occasional pills from him. 
or because we both grew up very religious and early in our marriage, we were very devout in churches that practiced regular fasting. I explained to him and anyone else that I was either quote unquote fasting and praying or that I must have caught a stomach bug or that I needed the water pills for PMS. So when did any of this deep-seated unhealthy behavior start to improve? When I started Atkins on November 4th, 2013. Yes, I totally approached it just like any other restrictive drop weight quick tactic. And I intended for it to only be a short-term solution to just drop 10 pounds as quickly as possible and then return to calorie counting. At this time, I truly was about 40 pounds overweight, meaning above my max healthy weight on a BMI chart, and I was desperate. We had just gone through a major challenging life transition, and I had gained those 40 pounds within a matter of a year because I was so depressed and grieving and using food as a coping mechanism. I felt like an alien in my own body. I didn't recognize myself when I looked in the mirror. And I truly hated myself, and I definitely approached Atkins after one of those self-hatred wake-up calls. I had seen my mom and aunts use Atkins when I was growing up as a way to lose five pounds in a week and then go out for pizza on Saturday. I had never seen anyone actually stick with it long-term, hearing that it was actually unhealthy and would cause a heart attack from all the fat, so that was really my only frame of mind about it. I thought that even though it wasn't good for me, I wouldn't do it long-term, and the end would justify the means. Of course, I dropped the initial water weight of about 10 pounds in 10 days, and I was so excited. The weight loss leveled out to about 2 to 3 pounds a week, but I was still losing. I had told everyone that I was only going to do it until Thanksgiving, and man, were people upset when I was going to stay low-carb on Thanksgiving Day. My husband was especially upset with me. I'm not calling anybody haters. I think rightfully so. They had all only ever seen me do fads and then drop them for some next thing. So nobody was taking me seriously and thought I was just going overboard with restriction yet again. I was just following the induction phase to a T, though, and for the first time in my life, I actually didn't feel restricted at all. That was the point. I could eat foods that were satisfying. If I was hungry, I could eat. There were plenty of foods that were low to even zero carbs so that even if I did for some reason reach my 20 net carbs for the day, Earlier than I expected, I could still eat some eggs or some cheese if I was hungry. Contrast that to years of reaching my calorie count for the day by lunch, or sometimes even breakfast, and then feeling angry and depressed that I had to eat nothing until the next day, and then usually failing at it and just binging. For the first time in my entire life, I felt satisfied and not compelled to eat more food after dinner at night. For the first time, I had zero cravings. I never realized how truly addicted to sugar and carbs I was. Previously, every night after dinner, I was watching TV and feeling literally compelled to get up and get something sweet, then something salty. Now I need something sweet again. Every day, I would diet so well the whole day and then blow it on after-dinner snacking. This was, for the first time in at least 15 years, totally gone. For the first time, I would wake up in the morning and not have my first thoughts be regret over what I ate the night before or trying to mentally calculate how many calories it really was. The physical addiction lifted and with it, the shame and subsequently my mood. I wouldn't know until years later from nerding out hard on all of the science that this ketosis was actually changing my brain chemistry. This was so monumentally life-changing for me that I never went back. Now, I'm not saying that this is for everybody, but I knew it was for me. 
Some people do fantastic at keto for a season and then want to move on to a more liberal, low-carb diet, or they enjoy carb cycling or whatnot. I'll do another podcast episode on different approaches to keto and also what I've observed about how different approaches fit better for different personality types. But for me, what works is maintaining a keto lifestyle for life. Okay, so keto changed the physical weight and the physical addiction. What about all the mental hangups about feeling overweight? No, it didn't take that away. But it did give me the energy and the clarity and the lift that I needed to start working through these limiting beliefs. Since starting keto seven years ago, I've also done a ton of therapy and personal development. And while I wouldn't say that I'm completely free from the mind games, I'm light years away from where I used to be. I have a lot more tools now to work through those thoughts when they do come up. I have a lot more compassion for myself. I've learned that the way I used to treat my body was a form of physical abuse. I am not saying that eating carbs is abusing your body. Please don't hear me incorrectly. I am saying that the way I used to treat my body, punishing myself with restriction and also punishing myself with binging, was a form of abuse. Keto became part of the path to freedom for me, and I believe that because of the way it literally changes your body and brain chemistry, it can be great news for so many other people too. I mean, I felt like I discovered the cure to life simply because my weight drama was always at the epicenter of my life and my focus. I became passionate about helping other people find the freedom that I found, particularly women, because we deal with our own unique brand of pain surrounding weight and body image. I think it's so powerful to share our stories with others. If you're hearing this today and you're relating to it, I want you to know that you're not alone. You are not fundamentally broken. You are not doomed. You do have power. You have the ability to choose and the ability to act. You have the ability to make changes in your life. Yes, you've let yourself down before, but you are still trustworthy. It's not about your perfection. It's about your direction. You are worth working on yourself. Your future can be what you hope it to be. You think hope fell off the wheels months or years ago? No, it didn't. You wake up every single morning because you still do have hope in there and it can be ignited. Did you know that I'm a weight loss coach exclusively for women? I work with clients one-on-one and in small groups. It's very personal and it's holistic. We talk about the practical and the personal, the habit changes and the mindset changes. It's a ton of listening to you and helping you unlock your motivation to do the things you already know, because of course everything you need to know is free on YouTube. Coaching is not just about changing behavior or habits, but changing beliefs, which means changing behavior for good. I would love to work with you. You can learn more about my coaching services at theketofit.com. In the meantime, I'll continue to serve you with free helpful content here on the podcast, and you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at theketofit. Remember, you're allowed to be both a masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously. See you next episode.